welcome to Avi's Conversational Corner, a podcast on history, culture, and politics in a broad perspective. I am your host, Avi Wolf. One issue which has always concerned modern conservative thinkers is the proper and natural order of human society. Should it be near spontaneous, as Hayek would have it? Or perhaps based on Aristotelian thinking, as many Catholic thinkers of old would aver? And how can the search for order make sense in as rapidly changing a world as the ethnically diverse society of the United States of America? With me today is Joe Lawton, an up-and-coming conservative thinker. To discuss the ideas of a particular modern American conservative thinker and co-founder of the American conservative movement, Russell Kirk, and how they relate to America today. Joe, welcome. Avi, thanks for you for having me on. I am particularly excited um, to hear, to kind of talk about Russell Kirk and how he relates to kind of the supposedly demographic turmoil that we have in the United States and how can, you know, people come from supposedly elsewhere relate to the American conservative tradition. You know, we're hearing about is fusionism dead, uh, you know, in Roman Catholic integralism is apparently making a comeback. So it's a kind of very wild and woolly time for Amer- American conservatism finding its identity and kind of how that relates to the community that I grew up in. My father's community um, definitely interests me. So um, I'm really excited to be on. So let me start with an obvious question. How did you become attracted specifically to Kirk? I know that uh, most people I know who were attracted to the right were attracted to Buckley or through Milton Friedman or perhaps from Friedrich Hayek. Kirk is not all that well known. So I'm curious to hear about your particular journey. Yeah, I had a great class uh, taught by one of my favorite professors, Dr. Van Voris at my alma mater, Concordia University, Irvine, that was a class on the history of American conservative political thought. And so we, we definitely went over Friedman and Hayek and the kind of, especially more libertarian side of um, you know, the kind of fusionist uh, American conservatism. We definitely went over Buckley, Reagan, uh, but the biggest book we spent most time in was uh, The Conservative Mind, and that had been uh, the first time I'd ever read it. And there were parts of it I kind of initially pushed back on because my understanding of conservatism was a lot narrower. You know, it was kind of um, influenced very much by the, the kind of SoCal, American Southwest you know, very much Goldwater to Buckley to Reagan to Bush conservatism that I was familiar with growing up and kind of, you know, being around. So that was that was new to me. It was, it was almost so old um, that it was kind of fresh in a way that it was it was unlike a lot of things that I was hearing. And I think especially what was appealing was the idea that conservatism is a tradition. And so conservatives are free to disagree with each other on some things as long as we're aiming towards these kind of more general conservative principles. So there isn't one particular mold uh, to be conservative, and that fascinated me a lot in college. And then that was an idea that fascinated me a lot more once, kind of the old conservative Republican coalition, you know, started to really noticeably break down, you know, from 2015 till now. So that's kind of how I got into him and kind of got back to him, and I, I find him really relevant for this moment. Interesting that you say that because when I read. The conservative mind uh, a few months ago. Um, I had already been, uh, like many uh, people on the right who are now politically homeless, doing a lot of soul searching regarding the history of the movement. Um, 
While I certainly have sympathy for the more robust, what I like to call the thicker conservative tradition, when reading The Conservative Mind, I couldn't help but thinking and feeling, um, in addition to the issue of the South, which we'll get to uh, later on, uh, that Kirk's book was very much about a world which, like it or not, first of all, is no longer around. Uh, and second of all, really kind of doesn't have and much of anything to say for people who live in our own world. Uh, he has almost nothing positive to say about the city. Uh, he has almost nothing positive to say about any elites other than people who are either old aristocrats or from the landed aristocratic tradition. And I was curious to see how you in the very, I might even say almost hyper-modern conservative world of uh, Southern California, how you actually specifically saw, no, this actually has relevance and value. Totally. Um, I get, I mean, a lot of that I agree with. I think um, a lot of Kirk's own personal opinions um, and preferences are definitely from another era. Um, you know, in fact, I think in one of his biographies, or maybe it was on the Imaginative Conservative, someone pointed out that he still, uh, when he gardened, he gardened, he wore like basically the, not, not full morning dress per se, but I mean, you know, a jacket and a tie. And so the world that he lived in in Macosta, Michigan is just so dramatically different today. Um, so, and, and I definitely agree that um, there were some things that um, he could have definitely done a lot better, right, in predicting. Uh, but as far as kind of those, those 10 conservative principles that he elucidates, and as far as kind of how he navigates kind of the genealogy of conservatism from Burke to the United States and up through um, the early 1900s, I see that as having kind of timeless relevance to now. Now, that what we, because we live in such a, you know, dramatically different place, that means we're going to have to apply them to scenarios that I think Russell Kirk just didn't foresee, right? The world is just so dramatically different uh, than when that existed. But I, I definitely think... Um, the, the, the conservative mind, I, being a genealogy and kind of more of a history, does miss out on some of the more modern aspects that he had. Um, you know, he does have kind of more a uh, broader mind of the city uh, when you look at some of his writings over at the Russell Kurt Center. Um, I, I definitely think it's a matter of uh, partially his time, but I also think it's a matter of taking those kind of broader principles that he worked on and, okay, how do we apply it to, to the urban situation we have now? How do we apply it to the demographic situation we have now and update it? Because I definitely think what's nice about Kurt's conservatism is that it is more of a tradition and less of a doctrinaire ideology. Because the doctrinaire ideology, like we saw in 2015, 2016, has got a shelf life on it. Whereas I think a tradition, and viewing it more as a tradition, that applies timeless principles to new situations, I think that can be much more flexible and um, have a much longer shelf life than uh, what we see today. Very well put. Um, so if I may uh, put you on the spot here, uh, how would you uh, apply uh, any one of or all of Kirk's principles to let's say, Los Angeles? How would they be relevant to people living there? Yeah, I definitely think with LA, one of our biggest problems is how do we handle the massive amount of sprawl, right? I mean, so one, you've got the problems that are generic to any large city, 
But you've got very LA-specific problems. You've got a huge turnover in population. Um, you've got the problems um, that come with, in particular, come with maintaining a really vibrant economy in a state where the housing costs have skyrocketed and the cost of living overall has become higher and higher, which is why people move out you know, to the valley. They move out to Orange County. And so you have a sprawl that in some ways is kind of good for the greater LA metropolis, is not great for the city proper. So I think a couple things from Kurt's principles could be necessary. One is conservatives are going to have to abandon kind of, um, they're going to have to abandon national politics. I think it's in a huge disservice to California conservatives to be really obsessed with the national sphere. Like you see this in elections like in Florida where issues like um, the American Alliance with Israel, as important as that is, just doesn't really have a lot to do with Florida as far as how, you know, how are you going to make the trains run on time? And I think that that fourth principle of conservatives being guided by principle of prudence means, you know, we are going to have to look at less so, you know, uh, uh, you know, the anti-tax pledge on a national level. We're going to have to look more at, well, what are we going to do to be, you know, to have funds to uh, make LA work, right? Or more specifically, I think the fifth principle is going to be really important is the conservative idea of the principle of variety, that people are going to want to live in different places. And I think this is, even though Kirk kind of maybe had some outdated views on the city or uh, a couple other uh, kind of staples of modern American life, that idea of the principle of variety, I think, is super important because that means that Silver Lake doesn't have to be South Central, and South Central doesn't have to be Long Beach, and Long Beach doesn't have to be Orange County. Um, and I'm using a, a wider definition of the greater LA area, obviously, but um, we have to tailor these solutions uh, to the more local area. We have to recognize that the different parts of Los Angeles are very different from each other and are going to have to require different solutions. And also, we are going to have to not be discouraged by imperfectibility, right? We, to an extent, in the conservative tradition, believe that human beings um, are going to have certain grave faults, and that means we can't expect, you know, the, this, I think too often conservatives judge urban politics and urban conditions by a very rose-colored uh, idea of what they imagine the ideal of rule life is. And so um, I, I definitely think we need to abandon that. So that's, that's just a couple examples. Um, obviously, you know, Kirk, um, we kind of delve into urban policy a little bit more. Uh, but just kind of at the top of my head, uh, some ideas of how those 10 principles he talks about can be applied to a very um, a microcosm like Los Angeles. That's interesting. Um, but if I may push back a little bit... Um, one of the reasons, and I'll be defending Kirk here, even though I disagree with him, just for the purpose of uh, conversation. Uh, one of the reasons that uh, conservatives have often uh, fallen in love a great deal with uh, rural life is that there's this image, not often, not always accurate, but there's this image of people living in small towns that they never change, that traditions are maintained, uh, that uh, timeless ideas are kept there, whereas the city, rightly or wrongly has this image of this place where while everything is constant there are always new ideas and sometimes very interesting new ideas it's a place with so, that feels or at least from the outside observer looks like a place with so much churn and so much turnover and especially nowadays when everyone's suggesting uh, to techify everything that um 
you spoke of the question of the politics of cities, but uh, people like us who are interested in the, you know, the Kirks or at least adjacent thinkers of the world are, are also interested in the thicker cultural crust. And what uh, would you say, again, I'll refer to the place you know best, what would you say are the traditions or the folkways of Los Angeles that you think have maintained themselves, obviously, with changes and variants over the generations? Do those exist or not? And if so, what are they? Yeah, LA is a little bit unique and California is a little bit unique in that it's probably, with the exception of maybe Alaska, because Hawaii has got its own thing coming on, right? Uh, it's definitely its own community that pre-exists its entry into the union. Um, California, on the other hand, is very different, right? You do have a pre-existing society, uh, an indigenous native Californian society, um, kind of Spanish-Mexican society, and that really gets swamped really quickly in the gold rush and the entry into the Union. And then with the creation of the interstate and Golden California, you know, in the post, uh, post-war post era, it just, I mean, everyone comes over, right? And so I mean, it's pretty rare to meet people. I've met two, like, I've had two childhood friends I know who have roots to that pre-statehood uh, um, California, but for the most part, everyone I know today, like I, like I live in Irvine now, just moved, and basically, if you've lived in Irvine for the last twenty years, you're you're an old, uh, old hand, right? So California is a little bit unique in that everyone's gotten here really recently. Either they're a migrant from another part of America, or they, you know, have come from another country to here. So Los Angeles in the greater greater LA area is unique in that it's not only an urban and suburban space overwhelmingly, but unlike a lot of those older cities like Chicago and New York and Pittsburgh and Philadelphia and Boston, it's a really new city. And it's so much of it has grown up in the last 50 years. And so much of the population has shown up in the last 50 years. And they showed up to not much, right? They, they showed up to a place that was already fairly young. So it hasn't been given, I think it's a little unfair to, to judge LA and California more broadly by the standards of um, either rural conservative America or even urban conservative America, um, because it's just so new. That being said, I do think there are some ways we can apply conservative principles to urbanism and to city planning. Uh, we need to be thinking less about, okay, how can we best accommodate capital or how can we best accommodate, quote unquote, the economy and go, okay, how can we best accommodate families, right? What do families need and how can we best facilitate a community that knows each other, right? So like the neighborhood I lived in really recently in Long Beach, uh, in some ways did that really well. So Long Beach uh, and certain parts of Los Angeles and LA County are really good at making cities more a little more walkable, right? So you do, you know, like for instance, I used to have the bar I went to and my coffee shop and my grocery store and my church and the beach. So pretty much my recreation, religious life, community life, and economic necessities all right there. Right. And so I knew my neighbors kind of a little more well than you might know in the suburbs, for instance. Um, so how can we facilitate that? How can we facilitate lower housing costs? Right. Something that's incredibly dire in Los Angeles. So I think there are ways in which we can make it easier for a place that has such high turnover to facilitate local, uh, eventually kind of churn out a local identity. Right. A lot of these communities are older, though. Uh, you know, you can look at Filipino town, Los Angeles or South Central or um, a lot of your older Mexican communities, um, but like Boyle Heights. 
But we also need to recognize that while some of that churn is inevitable, some of it's not. And some of that is the direct result of government policies that either out just outright uproot communities, like what happened in Chavez Ravine and the Dodgers, um, and kind of, you know, eminent domain gone wild, or privilege things like um, a quick turnover rate in jobs or, you know, privilege things like capital in a way that makes it a little more difficult to, you know, create these communities. Uh, or, you know, protecting people who already own property and making it difficult for people to, you know, rent or making it difficult for people to buy houses because of the cost uh, skyrocketing. So I, I definitely think in one in some way, California is always going to be a little bit more classically and leftishly liberal than the rest of the country because it's just so new. And it hasn't, in many ways, had the time that Chicago, New York, and other parts of the country have had to uh, develop a small-c conservative identity. But um, in a lot of ways, it, it's got that opportunity. It, it does have communities that are old here that can develop their local variety. Um, but they've been they've been hamstrung either by more neoliberal policies or by outright um, status policies that have kind of squelched that. And so I think conservatives are going to have to be very uh, nuanced and they're going to have to be creative out in a place like California. Well, thank you for that uh, very detailed uh, breakdown. Very informative. Um, following it up. Uh, you mentioned the importance of diversity and the different, the importance of uh, local identity and how this place doesn't have to be like that place and so on and so forth. Um, how would, would you say that the uh, Kirkian principle of variety, does it align or does it come close to the more liberal or left-wing idea of diversity? Are there differences? And if so, what are they? I think in some ways it does align. I, I remember um, I kind of, so most of my, just due to where I live and kind of adjacent the industry I work in, um, and I kind of work adjacent to academia as well, most of my friends tend to be, uh, at least see themselves as, as quite liberal. And so I, I remember I surprised a lot of my friend group by, by posting um, an article from uh, the Imaginative Conservative, which is very Kirkian, um, called The Conservative Principle of Diversity. And they were all really surprised, and I think more than a little confused. Um, and so I think in some ways, more than they give it credit for, it, it does line up, right? It, when you read about the idea of the principle of variety in, say, the conservative mind or other kind of Kirkian-type um, publications or books, the idea that, look, not everywhere has to be the same, right? I mean, so, the, you know, the kind of, uh, you know, we've all seen the type of conservative clickbait of someone flipping out of, oh, my gosh, I can't believe I have to... I can't believe I have to press one to hear English or, you know, I mean, that's, that's a really trite example. It's like, well, you know, maybe, you know, if we applied that principle of variety, we'd understand, well, there's just some places that don't speak English and they haven't spoken English in quite some time. Stereotypically, people really focus on Spanish, but you have Mandarin speaking communities in Northern California that are Cantonese, actually, more historically speaking communities in Northern California that have been speaking Cantonese longer than you know, the Okies who got here to Imperial and Kern County, you know, have been here since the 30s. Or, obviously, stereotypically, you have a, you know, really old Spanish-speaking community in the American Southwest. Um, but, you know, you have French-speaking communities up in uh, either the Upper Midwest or Maine or, stereotypically, Louisiana. So, it, it definitely, in some instances, is an appreciation that, look, people are going to appreciate different modes of life, and people have different modes of life, and we should not be trying to enforce a uniformity. 
right? At, at the same time, I think it is going to be somewhat different. Um, I think Kirk's idea of variety does acknowledge that perhaps, if, if we're looking at a broader understanding of culture as modes of thought and principles and forms of value systems, then it does allow for the idea that some might be better than others, right? Some value systems, uh, modes of thought, we, we can use, give that word culture, might be more productive, create more productive social outcomes than others, right? Um, at the same time, uh, it's the kind of more left eye understanding of diversity is really uncomfortable with that, even though I think everyone implicitly recognizes that, right? Anytime you've heard anyone on the left talk about how backwards the South is, um, you know, you, you tend to see that everyone sort of does believe that some cultures may be more productive than others, at least in creating certain social outcomes. Um, but but on the left, there's a little bit of discomfort uh, in kind of mul the multicultural left in recognizing that. Uh, so I think that's probably where you've got your big difference. Fascinating. So let's take that opportunity to jump right into the uh, the elephant in the room and the hot button question of the issue the the question that has been literally tearing apart the right more than anything else uh, since uh, Donald J Trump moved down that escalator and perhaps before there is this very very strong I would even say visceral deep-seated belief uh, among many people on the right not just elites um, that immigrants, whether legal or illegal, it clearly does not matter, um, from Latin America, and especially, but not exclusively, Mexico, almost as though they're kind of, I don't know, biological antimatter, uh, culture-wise, to becoming part and parcel of the American fabric, and certainly part and parcel of the American uh, cultural fabric and the American conservative fabric, and the American national fabric. Uh, and you yourself have written quite a few very interesting and very eye-opening uh, essays showing how it's, you know, based on an, a really serious misunderstanding, but I was wondering if you could explain to me and uh, our, uh, our audience um, as succinctly as you possibly can, hitting all the high notes, why this is why this is going way too far. Yeah, I think people are, are way too freaked out about it. And, and to be honest, it's, it's an American tradition. It's an American tradition since 1848, since the, Amer you know, the American invasion of Mexico and the conquest of the Southwest. Uh, but people go too far, I think, for two reasons. One is I don't think they have a lot of confidence in America. Um, I think there's a very serious underestimation of how effective cultural assimilation is, for both better and for worse, right? Uh, there is a very serious underestimation of how effective assimilation into the broader American mainstream is. Um, you can see this with every um, immigrant community, and you especially see it with Hispanics and more specifically Mexican-Americans. The rates of English acquisition, the rates of, on the more uh, long-term scale, intermarriage, the rates of, by generation, Mexican-Americans and Hispanic-Americans their political opinions mirroring the American mainstream. And for the conservative, that's both for good and ill. For instance, uh, the longer, uh, on the positive side, for the conservative kind of calculator, uh, you know, the longer Mexican-Americans are here, the more they're going to be wary of kind of state involvement in their life economically, 
right, stay in intervention in the economy. But they also become somewhat more socially liberal. And that's not because they're ingrained to be, um, you know, to the left. It's because they're assimilating to the broader American consensus uh, culturally and politically. Um, so on the one hand, uh, they underestimate America. And I think it's because we have a very short memory, right? We, we look back on how Polish Americans and Jewish Americans and Irish and Germans assimilated the United States and we kind of laugh, you know, I mean, seeing kind of insults for, say, uh, you know, Irish Americans or Polish Americans or Italians is seen as kind of funny because to us it seems ridiculous now, right? Or Gangs of New York is almost seen as, while well, it's seen as kind of a cool movie, it's also seen as like, wow, what a weird world in which certain white people were bad, right? And so we, we have a really short memory and don't tend to remember that actually this is an ongoing thing and America's actually pretty quite good at this, uh, if, you, if you give us 100 years. Um, but secondly, I think it is partially the, a, a cultural bigotry that could be remedied by this understanding of a principle of variety. And it's an understanding that the American Southwest is, I mean, has been Hispanic and Spanish-speaking and Catholic since the 1500s, uh, and, and also to a large extent indigenous um, since before that. And that is before Virginia Dare was born here. That was before the Mayflower. That is before uh, Jamestown. And it was before the signing of the Declaration of Independence of the Constitution. And so when America, I, I think oftentimes we portray the conquering of the West as this kind of empty, empty virgin land that we showed up and filled. And in reality, there were people and civilizations and communities already living here. And so if you take a more... Um, kind of narrow, chauvinist, well, an Anglo-American is the only American that could possibly exist, and so uh, we've got we to gotta root it out, right? So if you've got a Mexican flag in your yard, you're going to get harassed. If you speak Spanish in the public sphere in Fontana, California, you're going to get a talking to, and then you're going to get blown up on social media and canceled, right? And so it, it creates on both sides a lot of this resentment and tension that blows up in really mundane ways, like people getting canceled on social media, or in really terrifying ways like El Paso. And I think if we recognize, one, America's going to be just fine. We've been in this place before. We're in the middle of a big nativity shift. where the majority of uh, Hispanics for the first time in, since uh, probably the 1940s have been born in the United States. It's, the big wave is largely over. America's going to do what it always does, and that is assimilate people to the mainstream. At the same time, we need to have confidence in letting people live in the communities that they self-select, right? And that the American Southwest has been for centuries, uh, longer than the United States, Hispanic and Catholic, and to a large extent, what we would call stereotypically, quote-unquote, Mexican. Um, and that, it's fine. It's fine if it's like that. Uh, South Texas or Los Angeles uh, or New Mexico doesn't have to be um, the Hamptons, doesn't have to be New England. And New England doesn't have to be Appalachian. Appalachia doesn't have to be South Texas um, or Idaho, right? And so it, it's okay that these places are different, and it's okay that these places are um, not the same. And in reality, the attempt to make them doesn't really do any of them justice, and it really just kind of flattens it to where now none of these places are very unique. And, and ironically, the thing that people complain about is, oh, the suburbanization of America now is complete, right? Ironically, now conservatives are trying to do that when they try to flatten these Hispanic communities into something that they are not, right? Just like how the French, they ironically become a new Jacobin, right? How the French revolutionaries wanted to crush 
Breton identities or Occitan identities or Norman identities. Now it's just all um, flattened into one thing. So I think, one, being more confident in America and its ability to assimilate people, but also um, understanding that it's fine if people are somewhat different, that America is a pretty big identity and can accommodate these things. That's a great breakdown and a great explanation. Um, so that's um, that's consoling in terms of, uh, I guess, uh, in terms of American uh, identity. But the question a lot of people on the right, both in terms of politics and in terms of culture, are wondering is if what you say is true um, and if we simply let things happen on their own, Basically, uh, the what I like to call the woke white vote, because uh, white liberal Americans tend to have run far to the left of everybody else. Everybody's basically just going to catch up to them. That's uh, really the fear. And the question is, let's assume an absolutely imaginary world where Donald Trump, I don't know, kills over from a heart attack and the GOP starts a huge scramble and people start to... Re reordering and rethinking as they're still doing now, even with uh, Trump as president. What would you suggest uh, people do in order to try and perhaps staunch that advance or at least make sure that once that process is complete, the, the American mainstream looks a little more moderate than it looks like it's set to become? Yeah, if, if I understand you, I, I definitely think we have to be thinking a little more long term. What I do, so where I do share their concerns is this idea of kind of what you said that, that in reality the mainstream doesn't drive things, right? That the, the extreme wings of things start driving the mainstream. And it does worry me as someone, in particular someone that kind of lives in a more liberal place, lives and works kind of adjacent to academia, I, I mean, I definitely see it. You'd be foolish not to see it. Um, but I think there, there are definitely some ways in which we can kind of stop that or at least slow that from happening. And that is uh, conservatives are going to have to become very serious about education, right? Like it's almost kind of an oxymoron now, the idea of a conservative teacher or you see conservatives deride higher education. And that is something that we are going to have to just get more involved in uh, because that that's I genuinely believe is where it's driving is there's a couple key institutions like academia, like education more broadly, where you've had these long marches a couple decades ago and now and now they get to really reap the benefits of um, of, of those uh, ag agitations and those campaigns. And we are kind of now just now catching up or trying to quote unquote make people conservative after 12 years of state education and kind of wondering, oh, I wonder why we're behind. Right. Uh, how could this possibly happen? Uh, so I think that partially we haven't taken education very seriously. I think as well, um, we definitely tend to kind of feed into their own narrative. It doesn't help when conservatives see white liberals crowing about kind of a future demographic majority, which has always been short-sighted uh, and has always been incomplete, and then repeat it back to ourselves of, oh, well, yeah, they must be right. Oh no, Texas is going to become blue because uh, Mexicans live there. Oh no, California became liberal, uh, quote unquote, became liberal because Mexicans live there. Oh no, if a place is black and urban, it can't possibly elect a Republican. And um, and naturally, we, people who are being talked about notice they're being talked about, 
right? And so people go, you know what? It, m most people do not spend a huge amount of time. They don't have the time of day to kind of do what we do, nerd out and read a lot and write a lot and think a lot. Um, they've, they've got lives to live. Uh, and so most people spend, you know, maybe, you know, if they're well-read, a certain amount of time on politics, and then they go about living the rest of their life. And, you know, the, the, the variations of policy and political philosophy might escape them from time to time, but what doesn't escape them is when you're being talked about contemptuously. Everyone picks up on that immediately, right? Like, sometimes people go, I wonder why, uh, you know, when, whenever you talk about quote-unquote white people, white people freak out. It's like, well, it's because they know you're talking about it contemptuously. They can pick up on it. And similarly, everyone picks up on, you know, Mexicans being treated as there's some kind of, uh, I really like the way you put it, cultural antimatter, or black people being treated as if they're somehow moral children on some democratic plantation. They pick up on that, and if they were ever considering maybe voting for a Republican mayor or maybe voting for a more conservative city administration, I think where the politics is really going to be driving things in the next 20 years, 50 years, they're not going to consider it in a million years because they ultimately no one wants to give a vote to someone who doesn't like them, someone who's contemptuous of them. So I think we've really ignored the institutions that matter, right? We've become very politically successful on a national scale while ignoring the local and educational. Um, and at the same time, we amplify voices that are very contemptuous of, of non-white Americans and non uh, and urban Americans in particular um, of all races. And, and that's going to drive things more and that's going to you know if if they keep up that trend they turn the republican party or other conservative parties into a white rule party which means then you do have california right you do have basically a one-party state that leads to all the problems of a one-party state but but it's going to be no one's fault but their own right and so um they're gonna have to start getting more serious and more creative and less contemptuous of you know 40 percent of america if they want to be serious about governing this country and if they're serious about the common good. Cool. Um, so again, we're living completely in fantasy land, but continuing the fantasy land, uh, say I or someone else, or maybe yourself, uh, wants to, uh, approach the Mexican American community or the central American American community, uh, with, uh, conservative, uh, thinkers uh, that go beyond the question of free market and limited government. Do you think that Kirk would have something to say to them? Um, or would it sound too, this is too much from an, uh, this is too much from an English tradition. It would be better idea to perhaps uh, take something from the very broad, very rich uh, Spanish or Portuguese or Latin traditions to say, well, our ideas are like yours. You know what, that's interesting. I've not thought about that a ton specifically. I do think, I think probably name dropping wouldn't get very far. I definitely think um, you could take kind of the boiled down ideas a lot of the of a lot of these thinkers, uh, pardon me, of your Buckleys, of your Kirks, and apply them to the situation they live in. And I think ultimately what people do is how they identify politically and ideologically is influenced by how they identify on a partisan level. So as much as we talk about bottom-up cultural changes, I do think top-down matters, right? People, how people identify, um, I mean, you know, so many people identify as conservative now because Reagan called himself a conservative and Reagan governed pretty successfully, ergo, yeah, I'm in favor of successful governance, ergo, I'm a conservative. 
Um, I definitely think taking though those policies and translating them into concrete, uh, taking those principles and translating the concrete policies that actually affect their lives, right? Um, respecting um, their religious traditions and religious freedom. I, I, one of the few really uh, surprise. I'm a pessimist by nature, unfortunately, but one of the really what surprised me. Uh, cons- traditionally conservative policy successes here in California was there was a drive to basically penalize religious schools of all stripes um, to for uh, via basically taking away uh, state aid if they continued conservative policies when it came to sex and gender. And uh, surprisingly, that was defeated because uh, a lot of faith communities, people who would not be uh, invigorated to vote for the Republican Party or self-identified conservative causes, came out and mobilized very quickly. Roman Catholics, evangelicals, Muslims, uh, Orthodox Jews, and it was a surprising winning coalition on that issue. And I think taking that kind of, um, not tactics per se, but kind of that respect for people's um, for where people are coming from and actually appealing to them in that way, I think can really work, right? Like we can definitely appeal to them on, hey, you need a job and it is too expensive to live here and you can't afford rent and your school district is really bad and, um, you know, stereotypically uh, crime isn't great where you might live. We can fix that, right? We can actually have a policy that doesn't um, simultaneously doesn't coddle criminals, but simultaneously uh, doesn't crack down on people with an overbearing state. We can, you know, allow you to make decisions on the local school level that actually helps your child. We can, you know, actually free up the housing market. And so I, I definitely think there's a combo of we can respect people's communities by just stop talking poorly about them. Um, you know, appeal to a couple winning issues uh, like religious freedom. I think that's going to become incredibly important as one, traditionally um, Latin American immigrants and Mexican immigrants in particular tend to be more religious than the American mainstream. They tend to be more Roman Catholic. That is going to become more of a wedge issue as um, as LGBTQ issues and sex issues are going to become more common. That is going to be a, a, ten- a source of tension. And in that tension, you know, that's going to be a community that wants to be advocated for. But I definitely think when it comes to the bread and butter issues, conservatives can appeal to them in a way that I think is congruent with your fusionist conservatism, your traditionalist conservatism, um, and in a way that where they associate, okay, this is governance that works for me and doesn't have contempt for me. And okay, I can be interested in that, right? And that combi- a really smart, local-oriented policy push along with stop talking poorly about people and seeing people as the enemy, um, and just the wider kind of American assimilation that happens naturally, I think that can really work to where, you know, the, conser- the Republican Party on a national level, instead of looking like California, where it appeals to a very angry, small proportion of the state, or a portion of the state that isn't very interested in governing anyways, um, or small pockets that don't have much influence, um, to a state, or to a party like the Texas Republican Party that appeals to, you know, the suburbs and a couple large cities and, you know, 40% of the Mexican-American population. Like, that is a winning coalition. And it's not done by pandering. It's done by, I think, adapting conservative principles to where people are at and actually focusing on conservative policy that actually affects them as opposed to, I think, trying to 
win elections by baiting, you know, a third of the country into really disliking the other two thirds. And so I, I, I think the, the, the crossroads are really open for us, you know, like to be really cheesy and quote Reagan, I think it really is a time for choosing. If you want the, the Texas Republican Party and the best of it, we can do that on a national level, but it's going to require um, you to kind of abandon a little bit of your dis traditional dislike for a couple parts of the country. Or you can be like California, and you can be as angry as you want to be, but you're not. You're going to be politically irrelevant. So my fantasy is take the Texas model, make it national. Um, you know, my my fear is that instead we'll kind of spiral into a, the California Republican Party, who has very little to blame but themselves. Sounds like a nice creative decor. So let's finish off, um, perhaps. Uh, for myself, uh, now that I, I feel a little bit more favorable towards Kirk now, um, if you could suggest other writings of his that you think uh, would be particularly relevant for myself and for our listeners uh, on those subjects that we've just talked about. Yeah, I think a great one um, that is kind of less talked about is The Roots of American Order. And that is, um, it's definitely much more of a historical view, kind of tracing the basic ideological underpinnings or cultural underpinnings of American civilization. Because then it is a lot more cosmopolitan, right? Um, it, it goes back to Jerusalem, goes back to Rome and Athens, goes back to London, and talks about kind of the really basic uh, civilizational ideas that... Um, really go into uh, American conservatism because he, he really pushes back on this idea that um, you know American conservatism is in reality just warmed over uh, liberalism and you know classical liberalism and I, I definitely think that um, kind of pushes back on that in a way that makes it not only timeless but I think Americans can adapt to more local or newer um, newer situations um, I definitely think, there's a couple others. Uh, this is actually a long speech, but Libertarians, the Chirping Sectaries, um, is well worth thinking about because um, I definitely think he kind of underestimated how powerful the market was going to be. In a way, he properly estimated it, how powerful the market was going to be and how he worried that um, kind of the negative effects that that can have on a conservative culture. But at the same time, I think he underestimated how necessary allying with those people can be. But it's a useful thing to think about in this time because, you know, we are going to have to rethink the kind of centrality of the market to American conservatism. And so it's it's a long, I, what I believe is republished into a, book, a short book, but it's a long speech um, given to the Heritage Foundation on this issue. And it's actually in the class that I started reading, Kurt, was one of the things uh, that I, I wrote my paper on. Um, as well, uh, probably two more others where, cause where it kind of gets less esoteric and more concrete is a program for conservatives, which is admittedly published in the 50s, I think 1954. So it's a little bit dated, admittedly, but I do think it's a good start to what he saw translating um, those principles into action. And then economics, work and prosperity, which is published much later in 1988, still, you know, pretty old, but definitely gave kind of the benefit of hindsight, because I, I definitely think um, as far as concrete policy and economic policy, it's going to be a good start for us, because I definitely think we have, we're entering a post-industrial society, and that is going to really drive 
cultural and political change in this country. And so if conservatives are not ahead of it, and not ahead of it in the right way, like we're having those good conversations, right? The J.D. Vance's of the world and uh, uh, the, the Yoram Hazonis of the world are driving a really interesting conversation of what that looks like, or in Cass and others. But we can also do it in the wrong way, right? Where we have all these great ideas and that gets turned into let's bash immigrants and tariffs, right? And then and then we lose, right? Because we lose the battle of automation and other things. Um, and then as well, when it comes to academia, he wrote a really interesting essay called Academic Freedom, an essay in definition, kind of a good call to arms for conservatives in academia. Uh, calling Ameri uh, American conservatives to academia, that it is a worthwhile vocation for them to consider. It's not something that they should deride. Um, and, you know, write off, because if we write it off, then uh, we are always going to be fighting a losing battle culturally, but also kind of a program for what conservatism and academia can and should look like. So um, obviously the conservative mind is the big one, that, you know, the big elephant in the room, um, but I, I definitely think there are other writing. He, he wrote quite a lot. He also wrote, wrote a lot of novels. Uh, he was a big fan of the ghost story. Uh, but you know, beyond the conservative mind, which is more of a historical genealogy conservatism, there is a lot there for us to mine. And we don't have to ape it perfectly because it's not going to work, right? 88 is still a really long ways away from us now. Uh, but there's a lot for us to kind of digest and apply to the situation we find ourselves in. And I don't think Kirk, if you know he was alive today, would see himself as some uh, prophet, right? He's not Muhammad where this is the last final word. But his idea that, you know, this is a tradition and we need to value variety, I think, would understand that, you know, things are going to change and events, you know, uh, dear boy, are going to happen. And therefore, we've got we to gotta roll those punches, but still apply something, um, you know, apply what we've learned, you know, in this accumulation of what we've learned uh, to these new events. So those are the, I mean, anything he writes is probably worth, uh, worth your while. He's just a good, he has great prose, but those are probably the, the top uh, four or five that I would really recommend. Really good list of recommendations. Uh, and uh, I hope to be able to discuss, I wanted to ask a question about itself, but we're out of time. And uh, the issue of economics and conservatism is also, it's worth, they're, all, they're both worth their own podcasts. So that'll have to wait for next time. Joseph, thank you very much for coming on. I've learned a great deal and I hope our audience has too. Thanks for having me on. Uh, definitely uh, always enjoy conversing. Hope to have more conversations in the future. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm excited to see where this broader conversation leads. Thanks so much.